The political world is becoming increasingly volatile and unpredictable, while at the same time having a profound impact on the lives of citizens across the globe. This is Polis Podcast, and I am Thomas Barton, the founder of Polis Analysis. Every week, I'll be in the virtual armchair with relevant experts from Polis teams to discuss the key developments shaping the political world. All we need is for you to join us on the virtual sofa. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Polis Podcast. Uh, today, we'll be talking about COP26, given that the uh, summit has just started. So this is a special uh, podcast episode for you. And I'm joined by uh, two contributors. We've got Jay, uh, who comes back uh, to the Polis Podcast once again to talk about climate change issues. Jay is our senior analyst on international development, and uh, she also works uh, for an international organization. And we've, all, we've also been joined by Alex, and Alex is a special guest. He uh, works for an international political consultancy in public affairs and you know, focuses on UK politics, but also on uh, international diplomacy. So thank you both so much for uh, joining me. And let's just dive straight into it. Um, Jay, can you please uh, just tell our listeners what actually is COP26? What's it all about? Uh, so COP26 uh, is the COP stands for Conference of the Parties. Um, and this is going to take place in Glasgow over the next uh, week, a week and a bit. Um, it's kind of a build up on what um, it's been happening for 25 years, but it's specifically a build up on, on Paris and the agreement that was reached in Paris in 2015. Uh, the reason this particular COP is so important is because countries should be coming forward to kind of to come to even stronger emission targets. So the, these emission targets are called the Nationally Determined Contributions, NDCs. And the idea is that countries should be either kind of keeping those pledges or even pushing them further. So that's the reason this particular COP is so important because of that link to Paris. Um, and it's a year late, actually. It was supposed to be held last year, but it was held back because of COVID. Sure, that's really helpful. And Alex, when it comes to uh, COP26, I mean, what can we actually expect to unfold? Uh, what is the sort of political context uh, behind the conference? If you could just help our listeners uh, just to understand, uh, you know, what's the what's the political backdrop to all of this? Absolutely, absolutely. And and, and thanks, thanks, Thomas, for having me on on the podcast. I'm I'm really delighted to be here. Um, and I think just building immediately on on Jay's point. Um, the reason that we're having COP this year is because we were delayed by a year. We were delayed by the coronavirus pandemic. And so that is gonna be one of the key things going into this pandemic, uh, going into this conference even, um, that uh, politically we're in a situation where climate and, and climate crises are becoming more politically salient, but at the same time, having just experienced, you know, one of the greatest catastrophes of, you know, in, in living memory, uh, people are going to be looking to their leaders to, to assess, you know, where they view climate in terms of political and national priorities. So amongst this, amidst this backdrop of, you know, international uh, economic scarring and caution and concern, uh, people will be looking to this summit as a way of, you know, identifying the priorities for the next five, 10 and, and 20 years and understanding actually to what extent is, is climate 
policy and environmental policy important for for national and global leaders and so i think that's that's going to be one of the real tests of this summit um just a bit more from the uk perspective i think over the last year we've definitely seen a, a steady transformation in the british government's approach to to the summit you know from being billed as humanity's last chance and the the chance to consign coal to history to more recently as uh, Boris Johnson and the government realized the actual difficulties of agreeing a deal to a much more downscaled, downplayed event, which which will see hopefully, you know, which expresses hope for for achieving some sort of deal. And and, and this is what what people will be lo looking at, uh, especially politically. Yeah, and I think I think the, the UK angle is actually quite quite interesting because obviously this is the UK's first sort of diplomatic test really post Brexit. In terms of being able to try and you know convene an international uh, agreement amongst you know world leaders to what is a, a pressing global global issue, um, but I mean if we look at uh, if we look at uh, the UK's sort of approach so far uh, to climate change, I mean we had the budget that was announced last week by the UK government, and there wasn't really that much in there, according to a lot of analysts and commentators, when it comes to the green agenda. I mean, do you both feel as though the UK has actually done enough in the run-up to COP26 as host to try and lay the lay the groundwork for uh, for a successful COP26? Uh, well, yes and no, right? So the general consensus seems to be that the UK is doing a lot more than other countries. So for example, the commitments to uh, stop sale of combustion engines is really currently only in terms of cars is currently only in the UK and California, to my knowledge, at least. So in terms of that, you've got some quite tangible pledges, and particularly if you compare to other countries, such as, say, Indonesia or Australia or India, if you look at it that way, it's pretty good. If you look at it in terms of what the world actually requires, it's obviously not enough. We're currently on track at current emissions or current, current scheduling for 2.7 increase in global warming in, in global warming temperatures when as everybody knows we really need to stay below two degrees and ideally below 1.5 so you have to look at it both from a global perspective but also from a scientific perspective yeah which is a key point because ultimately the yeah. uk is only responsible for you know less than one percent of global emissions but i guess one thing alex that's therefore worth looking at is is, is the guest list or the list of attendees given this is an international issue we're going to need an international sort of, of consensus or you know uh, approach to this to this so uh, i mean are there any sort of you know notable world world leaders who are going to be attending the conference and you know, can you just help our listeners understand who's actually not showing up and the impact this can have on the on the success uh, or you know potential failure of cop26 of course uh, and I'll, I'll get on to public naming and shaming in a second <laughs> but i think building on on jay's point very quickly um in terms of has the UK done enough, yes or no, I mean, let's not forget that uh, the government this year and last year, you know, have announced this plan to introduce, you know, 78% reduction in emissions from the 1990 level by 2035. And they've made that a legally binding commitment. So actually, I think one of the things that the UK government has done and many governments around the world have done is in terms of setting targets, uh, this, this COP has been already quite successful in driving that shift, you know, raising awareness for, for, for the climate crisis and for climate issues and, and compelling governments to at least 
start taking action in terms of setting targets. And, and this, this will be something that hopefully we'll see throughout these next two weeks, but also within, you know, throughout the next five years. Now, now that we have this very ambitious 78% target here in the UK, um, we'll have to see what kind of legislation, what kind of action comes in to, to actually enforce this, or how, how do you reach this target? I mean, that's, that's the next big question. And then going back to, to the point of, of who's attending and how diplomatically important this is for the UK, not only as a, as a climate summit, but as a wider question of, of the UK's role in the world. Uh, mm -hmm. on the, yes, the, the prime minister and, and the British government will be looking to make this as successful as possible. But obviously we know already in the run up, there are some major names who will be absent, most notably Chinese Premier Xi Jinping. Uh, and although he's selling, sending his, his delegation, uh, th there are still questions, you know, to what extent uh, can, can Chinese involvement, uh, you know, produce tangible outcomes with, without Xi being present. Uh, you know, on the flip side, we see also um, a few Western leaders uh, who, who have been hesitant. I know that Australia's Scott Morris, w Morrison will actually come, but there was a long time where it was still up in the air Absolutely. as to whether he would attend. And yeah. then other big names, Putin, Russia's President Vladimir Putin will, will be notably absent as well. And Russia, who, who are a huge you know, contributor to global emissions uh, being absent will also have uh, a huge impact on, on the success, well, the potential success of, of, of the summit. And I think the, the absence of these leaders, if not perhaps impeding technical progress, will, will definitely impede the, the perceptions of the summit. You know, how, how can this be a globally successful summit in people's eyes if, if key players are not present? And I think that'll be something to watch as well. You know, there'll, there'll essentially be two cops going on here a technical cop and a political cop that sets to, you know, aims to change narratives around the importance of climate in politics sure. and society. Sure, and that's that's a good point because actually we 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 all know the world leaders are joining for the first few days, and then they're sort of going back to their other well, important yeah. business and le leaving the uh, the technical experts to uh, thrash out uh, discussions and negotiations afterwards. But Jay, I mean, do you feel as though uh, the absence of some of those world leaders that Alex uh, has mentioned? will have an impact when it comes to the technical side of this agreement. I mean, Boris Johnson uh, a couple of days ago talked about how uh, climate change is the issue that could sort of make or break civilization. And it was also a very grandiose language, but trying to demonstrate this is, this is a, huge, a huge challenge. And you know, regardless of what the UK does ultimately, uh, it's operating from the confines of the fact that this is a global issue that, requ that requires a global response. So do you think that the, uh, the sort of, uh, uh, world leaders who are missing in action, so to speak, will that have any impact on the technical side of uh, COP26? Well, obviously, um, one other person that he, um, he forgot was um, Jaya Bolsonaro also won't be there. And that's really important in terms of, um, not just in terms of the Amazon, but re in recent, um, the recent years, the Amazon has gone from being um, emitting, sorry, absorbing carbon it's now admitting more carbon than, it's, than it absorbs. Right. So in that sense, Jaya Bolsonaro is the other kind of key figure missing. You've got, and there are the three real key figures missing. But you really do have the huge majority of the world there. For example, Modi wasn't confirmed until October 20th, but he's there as well. Scott Morrison coming on board is important in terms of Australia's role in terms of non-renewable resources in the mining industry. Um, and another thing I think to consider from like a non-state actor point of view 
is um, having people, for example, like the Race to Zero champion Nigel Topping will be there. And Race to Zero is pushing for non-state actors to, to reach net zero targets. Um, and that's kind of looking at it from the business side and the civil society side. Also in terms of political attention and in terms of kind of, um, in terms of the climate movement, David Attenborough is going to be there as one of the represent, um, one of the representation, what's it called? Like people's representative. Greta Thunberg is going to be there. Um, and you also have people like um, Patricia Espinosa, who's the executive secretary. She's going to be the highest UN official there. She's the executive secretary of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. And Franz Timmerman, who is the EU's executive vice president and pushed forward the EU deal quite a lot is going to be there. So maybe it's useful to think about it, not just in terms of what state actors are going to be there, but what non-state actors are going to be there or not be there. Sure, that's, that's, that's a good point. It's not just about the sort of key political heavyweights, but about, I mean, this is a broader, uh, a broader discussion when it comes to climate change, because it just has such wide ranging ramifications, uh, which is why it's probably worth just quickly uh, talk about why, why COP26 and the convening of the world's you know, most powerful people uh, is important to our listeners. I mean, why, why does this uh, sort of summit actually matter uh, to citizens, not just in the UK, but, but internationally? I mean, Alex, you know, what, what, what would you say to our listeners in terms of the, the significance of this, uh, of this uh, summit? Well, I think, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's going back to those, those two things that I talked about. Firstly, there's that shift in narrative, which is, uh, I know, understandably, you know, sort of the last three or four years, we've probably been seeing climate play an increasing role in uh, political discourse uh, across the world in, in terms of where voters or how, how important voters view it as, a, as an issue when they go to the polls. Uh, but also from a very practical point of view, um, this, this will probably you know, impact on, on people financially across the world. In, in the developing world, um, the decisions made or not made in this case at the summit will have very real consequences on um, energy production, cost of living, uh, sustainability, um, livelihoods and jobs, you know, depending on, on what, what policies are announced. And, and for people in, in advanced economies uh, will also, you know, potentially limit or restrict or even change consumer preferences, uh, product available, uh, and, and, and bring in all these kinds of conversations about what people, what should people be doing personally um, to live more sustainably? Yeah. So, so no, I mean, on the one hand, it's a very sort of top level political summit, but it will absolutely, you know, whether whether we have an agreement or not, or whether we set the next st stage of goals or not, it will, it will absolutely impact people across the world. Yeah, that's, that, that, that's a really good point. And actually, I mean, we're seeing in, in uh, countries like the UK, for instance, that there is already a real material impact on, on consumers. I mean, if you live in London, for instance, uh, just this week, uh, there was the announcement of the ULEs, which essentially penalizes people who, who drive uh, diesel cars. Um, I mean, and there's a wider debate about all other you know, sort of aspects of life where people can modify, modify their behavior to reduce their carbon footprint, you know, talk about you know, reducing your meat consumption, for instance. So, uh, I mean, the government's also talking about entering people's uh, boiler cupboards and ensuring that they move towards you know, heat pumps exactly. and get rid of gas boilers. And it, it is getting really tangible for uh, for those who are based in uh, in countries where their governments are starting to take the green agenda more more seriously, uh, but given that Absolutely. the stakes, you know, oh, go for it. Sorry, 
just I mean, just to jump in as well, I mean, the I think it's the UK's Independent Committee on, on Climate Change estimates that 40 percent of UK emissions uh, are household emissions. So, mm. yes, there's a big onus on business and there's a big onus on government to sort of step up and, and implement policies which are greener. But one of the perhaps wavering poles in this debate of how much personal responsibility do people actually have for emissions? How much can you make a difference? I mean, there are definite steps that people can be taking. And, and yeah. I think this will this will become more prominent as well as, as we go on. Yeah, you're right. I mean, we don't need to wait for our, our political leaders to act. I mean, we can all act as individuals right now to to contribute to, to mitigating the problem of climate change. But Jay, I mean, given given the stakes, as, as Alex has just uh, eloquently explained, uh, of this uh, are so high and it's it, it, it's so real, this challenge for, of climate change for so many people across the globe. What do you actually expect to unfold at COP26? Do you think that uh, it will it will be a success? Will it deliver uh, you know, decisions and targets and uh, an action that's needed to really uh, tackle climate change effectively? What's what's your take on it? I th I've read a lot about this in the past few days, and it's a hard because it's so complex. The amount of interest involved and the climate system itself is so complex. Mm. It's hard to kind of put it in the success or non-success buckets. What is most important of the summit is that the possibility of one point five degrees remains alive. What is it? One point five stay alive something that this remains possible and within this i think there's a few really important points going forward um one is really in terms of climate financing it's going to be really important in that a if they meet the current 100 billion a year for least developed for developing countries and least developed countries target and b if they can advance that because the iea is saying something like a trillion or something a year or it was more than that so the, 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 it's going to be important in terms of the financing side, and that's kind of a way, a metric to judge the conference by. And another metric is the ideas we're seeing coming into this conference that were not emphasised that much in Paris. So some of those key ideas that were not really there before is the importance of land use, particularly in terms of land use as a carbon sink. That's really being emphasised by the Amazon. The oceans and the role of the oceans in climate change, both in terms of current and again, acting as a carbon sink. Um, biodiversity, we've just had the conference in Quinmin, the push for 3030 in terms of um, land protection and ocean protection, all of these ideas. And um, finally, nature-based solutions, which is the whole idea of actions inspired by the actions or functioning of nature. So these kind of ideas are kind of getting more currency and more traction. And the level of currency and traction and attention they get is linked to Alex's point, which it's how much people can see these ideas playing out in their day-to-day -day lives. So these are some of the metrics which I think we should be looking at COP at, not just saying it, it works or it doesn't. It's not that simple, I think. That's, that's a good point. It's not so black and white. Um, and, and Alex, just to wrap up, just bringing it back to sort of a UK perspective, because ultimately the UK is playing, is playing host in all of this. If you were Boris Johnson tonight, uh, you know, think, uh, the last evening before COP26 really kicks off, how would you be feeling? Would you sort of be, you know, up all night, stressed that this conference is going to be an absolute failure and it's, you know, uh, the UK is going to come across as a country that was unable to, to use its uh, diplomatic weight to bring world leaders together? Uh, in Glasgow, or actually do you think that he's uh, going to be optimistic 
uh, which is often the case when it comes to Boris Johnson and his political outlook. Uh, but do you think you'll feel confident uh, that, you know, uh, going into the uh, next week, there will be, uh, or into the following week, sorry, there will be uh, you know, some sort of uh, success around COP26? Well, I think I think if I was Boris Johnson, I'd probably be up preparing my next quip about bunny huggers or, or something like <laughs> that and preparing some typical Johnsonian remarks. But in terms of, of optimism, um, it, it's going to be a mixed bag. I mean, obviously, as I said to the start, there's already been this gentle downgrading of what we think this conference will achieve, you know, from a government perspective, uh, an emphasis now on how hard it will be to reach a deal uh, you know, reflection that an acceptance that some key actors will be missing. But on the, on the flip side, um, one thing that we perhaps haven't even talked about yet is obviously an American resurgence coming back in. Biden's going to be there in full force. He's he's now, you know, desperately trying to push through his, his $1.75 trillion domestic funding package, uh, which, which which should see some key so environmental clauses uh, in it. And, and he's going to come back. And, and after the sort of past five years of of American politics, he's going to hopefully, or at least from Johnson's point of view, hopefully reconfirm, you know, American leadership in in terms of uh, leading the fight against against the climate crisis. So, so I think that'll be something he'll be banking on. And and one other thing to point out is I've always thought of COP as more of a starting gun uh, as opposed mm. to an end point or a, a point mm -hmm. that we're building up to. I mean, all these pledges from governments, but also from from business and from civil society leaders. 2030s, uh, 2040s for a lot of businesses, and then the ultimate net zero by 2050. Yeah. Although now for the and for the Saudis, it's it's 2060. Um, so so in terms of nervousness, maybe not nervous for the next two weeks, but actually for the next 10 years of, you know, we've we've set out these targets. How how do we achieve them now? Well, that's a good point, Alex. We'll have to wait and see ultimately if uh, Boris Johnson's uh, own warnings of a potential you know collapse of civilization as we know it. Uh, is heeded by by leaders, but also by uh, not just political leaders, but as you say, um, key people in the business community, and ultimately uh, every one of us as consumers, because we can all we can all uh, make a difference to this issue and take action. And Jay, uh, you're putting this sort of UK centric uh, perspective to one side, uh, just you know very quickly for our listeners in terms of what next for the uh, international uh, implications of of COP26. What what would you what would you set out? And uh, well, there's a few things, um, kind of few things just to draw your attention to. So really key, a really key point of, of COP26 is the end of coal idea. So this could be kind of what is it, the one of the final nails in the coffin of the coal industry. So that's a real key area for people to focus on because our current coal, um, current, the current level, the IEA says that the current level forecasted of coal use for 2050 is four times what would be the requirements for net zero. So this is a really important point sure. that we really sure. push. And obviously in pushing away from coal, we'd be pushing towards renewables. So people should be watching that shift in the market. Another thing that people might not be aware of that could be kind of linked to this is the global methane pledge. So methane is a, has a greater impact on the in terms of climate change and global warming emissions. In the short term, it's 86 times um, more intense than carbon. Um, and there's a push for uh, a by 2030 to have 30% less than 2020 levels of methane emissions. So any kind of industries linked to methane could be impacted. 
One kind of thing to draw people's attention to, it's unclear how big this is going to be, but this this idea was pushed in 2015, but didn't really get anywhere by the smaller countries. And that's the idea of compensation or loss and the loss and damage clause. So the idea that the least developed countries didn't cause the problem, but are experiencing the greatest impact in terms of fire, in terms of storms, in terms of droughts, particularly in areas like the Sahil and in countries like low-lying countries like Bangladesh. So this idea might kind of take some kind of form in, in the summit and going forward might gain, gain ground. Well, there's, um, a, there's a huge amount to, uh, to, to look out for. Uh, when it comes to the next uh, the next week or so, COP twenty six. So, at Polis, we'll have to we'll have to monitor uh, developments closely and keep our keep our readers uh, up to date on uh, on the on how it unfolds and the consequences of of COP moving forwards. But Alex uh, and Jay, thank you both so much for uh, for joining me on today's Polis podcast. Thank, thank you. So we hope you enjoyed this Polis podcast episode. At Policy Analysis, we are fully devoted to helping individuals better navigate the political world. So we would love to hear your thoughts and please do share any suggestions you may have for future Polis Podcast episodes. Follow the Polis Podcast channel on Spotify to access our weekly episodes. And if you want to better navigate the political world with accessible, fact-based and impartial analysis of global politics, then sign up to our free newsletter at www.polisanalysis.com. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Thanks so much for listening.